welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. David M. from Portland. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Chris. Who's Aaron? Hi. Do you, are you okay with me going first and you second? You want to go first? All right. Well, I'm, I'm easy. But I mostly needed to see you because we need to talk afterwards. So, um, My name is David. I am a sexaholic. And the uh, title, Showing Up and Looking Good, came from the guy who's generating these tapes, Glenn Kay. Uh, he was laughing hysterically at the time he shared it. And uh, I, I think he just thought it was a terribly funny kind of concept. But it also uh, it resonated with me, and I'd like to... Uh, share a bit of that. And also, uh, just before, I, as I was taken to the airport this morning by my wife, and as I talk about Jane, I may cry from time to time, and I apologize in advance, but there doesn't seem to be much control over that today. Um, I said, uh, what should I say to these people down there? And uh, she never ceases to surprise me. I'd shared this earlier. I thought I would get it out of the way. It didn't work. Um, she said, uh, just tell them that it's uh, to hang in there, that it's worth it. And uh, as I shared with the guys earlier, uh, the essays earlier, it, when I consider the, the things that Jane has been put through by me, has had to go through with me, has put herself through despite me, um, for her to say, uh, hang in there, it's worth it. Was pretty uh, pretty amazing. Um, someone asked earlier about marriages uh, and keeping a marriage together in SA, and all I can do is uh, talk from my own experience. And and in terms of showing up and looking good and cleaning house and trusting God, um, I guess that's uh, sort of what I'll talk about. Um, when I came to this program, I had. Uh, trashed one marriage and a set of kids. I had uh, been married 12 years and after about five years had moved out from my wife. I'd rented an apartment. I never actually moved into it. I never got any further than a mattress and a sleeping bag. Um, and then uh, when the person with whom I was having an affair made it clear that this would continue only once I was divorced, um, I thought better about what I was doing and moved back in with my family. And then we tried what is uh, probably one of the most common cures for this disease, and that is we moved 800 miles, and we thought that would probably take care of it. Um, It was amazing uh, that it didn't take care of it. Uh, the disease turns out to be highly portable. And um, 
And it was only a short period of time in our new location that uh, I was back into the affairs. Um, And some of the things that probably didn't impact my marriage per se, but but reminded me, um, especially once I got sober, of how totally insane I was. Uh, because my sponsor used to say to me, David, you're always trying to pretty up your disease. You want to leave out the odors and the, and the griminess and the uh, fear and the, you know, the devastation that you did. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. It's just part of the sort of the nature of self-centeredness is, you know, we want to show up and look good on the surface. Um, and one of the things I used to do after we moved that 800 miles was I would, now you gotta remember I have advanced degrees, I have a fairly, uh, active and successful professional life. Uh, I continued in my professional life when I got sober. Uh, it was a professional life that caused me to be involved with a lot of people in a lot of very public situations. And delivering very rational responses to complex situations as part of my, uh, what I was supposed to do. Uh, I would go up from our house, our house was set down from the street, and I would walk up the driveway on the nights when there were full moons and I would stand up on the street and we had very few street lights where we lived and I would talk or howl or do whatever to the moon thinking that the woman I'd had the affair with 800 miles away was hearing me. And I really believed it. This is not healthy. <laughs> And I would do that full moon after full moon. And there was a part of me that in my head that would say, this is really weird, David. And I would say, oh, it's just imagination. I used to go around boasting that I knew knew the difference between fantasy and reality. Uh, I mean, I, I, all I can say is call it boasting. And it was it turns out it was a flat out lie. Um, I didn't have the foggiest idea where that line was. Or how to stay on one side or the other, for that matter. It was a constant moving back and forth. And this is sort of what my family lived with, this minimizing and, and to say nothing of the acting out, that was bad enough. But then the minimizing and the fantasizing and uh, how many times my wife had to say to me, well, you never told me that about some plan I had made or something that I had expected both of us to do or things like that. And, and I genuinely thought I had. And I probably had in my mind, uh, it was the actual execution of it with her <laughs> listening and responding that never quite happened. And that just went on in so many uh, ways. Uh, it made more sense when I got sober because I began to get some sense for what a vast amount of energy I was expending merely to look good on the surface to have all of those things that were part of my work life, my family life, my sort of personal life, exclusive of the disease, all of them looking all right and, and being okay. And, and that took constant attention and constant energy. And in the meantime, I was getting drunk. So, so I would get distracted, too. And then I have to sort of start all over again. And it was just very tiring. And I often blew it. Um, I think for a long time, showing up and looking good had a very surface uh, meaning to me. I, um, when I got sober, uh, probably for the first, well, 
there's a developmental part process to recovery in my experience. Uh, in the first 30 days, uh, sobriety means coming to terms with how incredibly sick we actually are, which very few people in my experience have even an inkling of much. Uh, the people around us do, but I mean ourselves. Uh, and for the first 30 days, it's just misery. And on top of that, if you're a sexaholic of the chronic sort, which I am, rather than the binging sort, there is also withdrawal. And all I can say is withdrawal from sexaholism is extremely physically painful. Um, and to say nothing of emotionally and, and spirituality is out the door. I mean, there wasn't any of that, but it was just really difficult. Well, then, after 30 days, it begins to get a little better. Start working the steps, go to a lot of meetings, work with a sponsor. And the next thing that happened was the rage. Roy writes about it in our white book. Uh, and it's actually one of the few places I've seen it in print. But generally, somewhere between 30 days and the first year, there's this wonderful volcanic rage that just comes spiraling up out of whatever's down in there and spews all over and makes everybody's life miserable. Um, I didn't amends to a woman who was my uh, secretary at work and uh, was in the process of retiring uh, anyway. That had been scheduled previously in the year in which I got sober. And we had kind of a rocky year, and then she went ahead and retired, and as it happened, they moved back to England, where they had come from. And so when I made the amends, I had to make it by mail, and um, there was no other realistic way for me to reach her. So I did, and, and as happened with all of my amends, I very carefully wrote out either my letter or what I was going to say to the person, and I took it to my sponsor, and my sponsor totally trashed it, and then I wrote it out again, and generally about the third go-round, I would have an amends, uh, which, you know, he was very simple-minded about amends. Uh, he said, well, David, you need to say you were wrong, and you need to ask their forgiveness. You don't need to explain why or excuses or what you're doing now, because you always want to say, well, I'm in recovery now. And, you know, he wouldn't let any of that through. So anyway, I sent off this amends to her. And I had several written amends that I made, as well as face-to-face -face ones. And this particular one, she wrote back, and she basically rejected the amends. And she said she hoped she never worked for such an angry person again in her life. Me? I'm a very nice guy. I'm, I'm sweet. I'm considerate. My wife has said that to me. You know, I had this whole sort of realm of very fuzzy, warm feeling kind of things, and I can get into it. And the truth is, she was absolutely right. Now, my sponsor said, David, your part of the amends was done when that envelope hit the mailbox. And and that was helpful to me. He said, we clean our side of the street. We have no control over what the other person does or doesn't do. It was true, though, that she worked for me during that time, even though she was leaving, when I was just a volcanic eruption of rage about this, that, the other thing. The truth is, finally, my sponsor said, David, what you do is you find a reason to be angry. Then you find something to be angry about. And, and that began to give me, a, give me a handle on what was going on, that, that the, the rage and the anger was just there. Well, it was just developmentally part of getting sober. And after that, then uh, comes the codependency stuff. 
And all I can say is after 11 years, apparently it has more to go. Um, in other words, going back and straightening out the relationships uh, that are just a part of my life, either the ones I've trashed and reconciling those to the extent possible or making an amends or, or just letting them go, and then also working the tenth step, you know, taking a personal inventory. And as Nancy A. likes to remind us, uh, you know, when we were wrong, she says it doesn't say if we were wrong or those rare occasions when it happened to be today we were wrong or, you know, just once in a while when it's the, our turn to be wrong. It's when we were wrong. We will be wrong. And when we were wrong, promptly um, admit it. And... Um, and that phase of sort of recovery seems to be ongoing. Um, my sort of experience, though, with the, the codependent, I, I call it the codependent phase because I just can't figure out a better word for it. I suppose relationship phase or, or taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others phase or it could have different names. But in terms of showing up and looking good, that's what had to change uh, so completely. Um, when I had gotten sort of a little bit into the steps and a little bit into sobriety and wasn't either consumed with the enormity of the disease or all the rage stuff, um, I began to get some just awareness at first. I, I think that's all I could have handled. And that's certainly all that came through of uh, how incredibly self-centered I was. Not only was, had been, and still was, still was quite prone to do. It took many different forms. I was telling someone at lunch, my default mental condition is negative. You know, if I have no other place sort of plotted out, I will go to whatever's the the ugly, negative, disastrous, death-wielding side of any issue, uh, including my health. Uh, I have a niece that, you know, she trades her latest lead poisoning symptoms and I trade my latest heart attack symptoms, you know, and we we just go back and forth. She called me up that day and said, where's your heart attack? I said, it's in my left elbow today. And, and you know, we, we, I, that's just my default thing with physical things. With emotional things, I always assume the worst. And I don't like that about myself. It's just the wiring that's uh, in there. Um, I, for many years, speaking of difference between fantasy and reality, um, I have been a, a pacifist on principle. Uh, and my wife used to say to me, David, you're the most violent pacifist I've ever known. Uh, and of course, I would get furious with her when she said that. And in fact, that's the case. You know, my default condition in terms of negativity is in any tense situation, go for the violence, go for the anger, go for the rage. And, and so all of that was there when I got sober. One of the most common things when someone gets sober, in addition to all the physical stuff and the other things that happen, is to uh, experience depression. And and I, I had a wonderful case of that. Uh, it was back at that time in the late 80s when tryptophan was still legal. Uh, it, it's not that it's illegal, it's just it turned out it had side effects and they took it off the market. But you can still get as much as you want by eating turkey. Uh, <laughs> it's true, I don't know why, but it's true. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a reason why we do turkey at Thanksgiving, it turns out. But <laughs> I was taking tryptophan, and I was quite willing to take uh, antidepressants. Uh, I did not take them 
for several years, and in fact, it wasn't until I was eight years sober that my sponsor, one August day, uh, said to me, you're on a dry drunk. And I said, what's that? And he said, go look it up. And looking it up means to look in as Bill sees it, so I did. And under dry drunk, it's depression and self-centeredness and a bunch of other things, and you just referred to those listings. And and the depression has come back from time to time. And and so what happens in terms of showing up and looking good is I had spent all these years taking care of the externals and being very nice, being sweet, being a pacifist, being well-spoken, uh, concerned about people. And what was going on on the inside was I was selfish, self-centered, angry, judgmental, uh, negative, uh, isolating in the sense of usually I was either better than or worse than. And if I had a choice, I'd choose better than. And um, But I was never there. I was always just off in that. And one of the things after I get through into those phases is coming to terms with who I actually am, accepting reality, as it were, or as I am, actually, and then uh, learning how to actually live with that. Um, the sixth and seventh step are, of course, the two steps where we do that most directly. Uh, we're entirely ready to, uh, to have God remove all these defects of character, which sort of bubbled up in step five, and humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. It doesn't say anything about whether they will go away, because the likelihood they'll go away is really low. Uh, in fact, it's down close to zero. Uh, it turns out that my character defects are the very stuff that makes me who I am. Uh, I had a wonderful illustration of this uh, yesterday morning. I was trying to think when it was. Um, I was uh, in a, I, I, I do uh, counseling sometimes professionally, and I was doing a counseling session, and this uh, guy was sharing something with me, and uh, in the process of sharing it, uh, We've been talking for about 40 minutes at this point. Something just really quick went across his face. And it was, I can tell you what it was. He, he had his hands in his lap and he, he looked up like that. It was very quick and his eyes went. And, and I did what I, for him, what I just did for you. And I said, what's that remind you of? And he said, a little kid. And I said, doing what? And he said, well, checking out the situation to see if it's what's out there, you know. We ended up both, I'm doing it now too, both just crying. I mean, we were just, it was a wonderful session. And at the same time, I was telling him at the end, because he knows I'm in the program, and I said, you know, I caught that look on your face. Because I asked him, have you done this particular piece of exploration before? And he said he had not. He'd come close when he'd been hypnotized, but that didn't the only situation. And I said, isn't this ironic? The trait that causes me the most trouble is that little shifty eyes looking around. I started doing that when I was oh, probably younger than four, because by the time I was four, I was well into it, watching adults. What does the adult want? What do they think? What's the teacher want? What do I need to do for her or to him to make him happy? What do I need to do? What do, what do, what do, what do? Always looking, looking, looking. The scanning, well, then eventually that got focused on sexual activities and body parts and stuff like that. And, and the scanner is just, you know, a radar doesn't begin to describe what's going on inside me. And I said, isn't that amazing? That tool, that characteristic of mine that has caused me such pain and caused others such pain over the years has, in fact, become something that can catch a fleeting glance and transform it, you know, with a little 
courage and help from God into something that can be useful to other people. So much of my trusting God and cleaning house today has been of that sort, of bringing up the stuff that I'd always thought I had to hide, the stuff that I always thought if you knew me, you would reject me, uh, the stuff that I thought if I didn't have, I would die. Uh, and all of those things, bringing them to the surface and essentially giving them to the world, to God as I understand God, and seeing what what use they can have in my life today. They don't go away. I'm as judgmental. I'm always late to meetings. You know, we read, we were doing readings this morning and we read that obnoxious part in our essay book where it says, show up to meetings on time. I mean, if I had editing privileges on the book, I'd take that out, you know. <laughs> but it's true, however. And, um, you know, all of my character defects are as much with me today. The irony is, for all of my confusion, getting lost, uh, sort of getting negative, all that stuff I do that my wife has had to live with. Um, today, it's just a joke. You know, it's just, she makes fun of me. I make fun of her. Um, and not in any negative barbed way that we <laughs> used to do. And Lord knows we were good at doing it. But just because uh, it's the way in which we practice the acceptance for each other that's been given us in this program. Turns out, turns out that I, I'm going to cry. Turns out that I can show up. I never thought I could show up. I always thought it had to be somebody else. It had to be some other little kid, some other little man, some other, you know, person, husband, father, whatever. It turns out that I can show up. And that if I let people see me as I actually am, that that's not only good enough, I also look good. I tell people, we're walking on the beach, and you find a really neat stone. What is it about the stone that attracts you? You know, it's the flaws. It's the funny little weird colors that are there, and, and they don't belong there. The stone is a gray stone or a white stone or a pink stone. And then there's this weird stuff and that, oh, that's really neat. Or it's a weird shape. That's a really neat shape. And, and that's what attracts us to each other is that we recognize not only the flaws in us, but we also see how they can make us beautiful. Um, why God chose this disease for me, I don't know. I can't tell you the number of times I've called my sponsor and whined about this or that. And he said, David, well, God made you a sexaholic. I guess he knew what he was doing. And it took me many years of hearing that to accept that, that having this disease and having this opportunity recovery is no big deal. You know, I used to want to get special credit. I told someone at lunch, <laughs> I told someone at lunch, I broke my anonymity over and over again for years because I think I wanted special credit for being a sexaholic. Well, you know, I'm glad I got over it. Unfortunately, we went through hell to get there. But but I did get over that. And and today, and I'll close with this, being a sexaholic in recovery is no big deal. What is a big deal, though, is working this program, going to meetings, trusting God, cleaning house, and having a relationship with a wife, with children, with you guys, with people in general, practicing these principles in all our affairs, that is beyond even my wildest fantasies. Thanks.
Good afternoon. My name's Kim. I'm a grateful member of the Ethnon group here in Sacramento. Hi. And I would like to introduce our speaker for today. Her name is Erin M. She's not David's wife. The, the initials are the same, but they're not related in any way. So here's Erin. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is, as she said, Erin M., and I am a grateful member of Essanon. Hi. Um, I love these conferences. They're always different, but, but what I love the most is this um, meeting that we have together because um, I have to say David's story is my story, too. And that always amazes me how how linked we are, how much we find each other because our stories are really similar. Our ways of looking at the world, our ways of dealing with our problems are, are incredibly similar. Um, I, our topic is, is a little different, although I, I think it's, it's really beautiful that yours was uh, showing up and looking good. I'm going to fall off of this chair right now. little comedy for the folks. Um, because uh, my modus operandi through my life has been to, to show up um, not looking quite perfect, looking just a little off and um, putting the blame on somebody else for that. Um, my difference, uh, the, the reason that I'm in my program and not in SA, is that um, I'm addicted to people who cannot or will not love and support me. Um, and I was actually asked to talk today about uh, what it is like to be single in Essanon, and I want to talk a little bit about that. I'm actually going to talk a lot about my relationship with my sex addict that got me into this program, um, because I've been thinking about it a lot lately as I, as I move forward in my life and, and, and looking at uh, making sure that I don't make the same mistakes twice. Um, my family didn't have any obvious signs of sex addiction in it. We had other addiction in my family, um, but it's, it was always presented in a very functional manner. Um, everything looked fine. There were no obvious binge things in my family. So I, I had no, no big story I could go crying to people about. If I, if I didn't feel good about something, it didn't feel right to say anything about it. Um, because my story was, or my life was, fine uh looked fine um there was nothing there was nothing big and bad there but there were there were all these little tiny really horrible things um my earliest sexual memory is of uh my mother catching me masturbating and i I was about four and she she said you know if you keep doing that you won't be able to have children which I can only conclude she said because she didn't know what else to say. But what a horrible thing to say. And what a, an incredibly damaging thing to say to someone who is just exploring their body and doesn't know any better at, at a young age and doesn't have any moral or any other relationship to touching their own selves than just that this is part of me, this is my body. And I know that that... Um, I took what she said so much to heart that I actually uh, decided I didn't want children anyway. So that was fine. (laughs) 
which is a problem for me now because, you know, now the clock's ticking and I'm going, well, I, you know, I know I didn't want children, but, uh, well, hmm. I don't really know what I think about it to this day because I made a decision by at the age of five that I didn't want children. Um, right around that time, the time that I was five years old, my sister was born and all of the attention went to her. And uh, that was my first, uh, that's my first memory of competition with another woman. This woman came along, she stole my, she stole my man, my father, who I loved, um, and she stole all the attention and I wasn't good or important or, or cute anymore. Uh, I like her now, it's okay. <laughs> um, and then the other really damaging thing uh, that came from my, from my mother is that um, whenever she was angry with me, she would say to me, you're just like your father. Which I am. I'm just like my father, and I love my father. I love him, but um, but that's a horrible thing to say. You're just like your father, and that was my response to that was, well, then why don't you leave us if you don't like us? Um, the message that I was getting from my mother was that she did not like me, and she did not like my father, and um, she to this day does not does not realize that that that's what she said. And I, I actually questioned her about it. I was uh, on a car trip with the two of them a few years ago, and I was talking about uh, members of the family and saying, you know, what was this person like? And, and uh, it's, it's commonly known the people on my father's side of the family who everyone thinks that, that I'm like or look like or, or act like. And, and I said to my mother, who am I like on your side of the family? And she said, oh, nobody. You're not like anybody on my side of the family. And I said, did I just, you know, pop out from nowhere? Did I pop from dad's head? Have I have nothing to do with you at all? What is this? Um, so that's a, that's a little bit troubling to, for for a girl to grow up in a family where her father is her god and her mother is rejecting is is um, you know pretty good way to get somebody on the path to Essanon. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm still very raw about these things. Although I I have um, I, I work on these. And I love my parents. They're they're lovely in many many other ways. This is just this is their weakness. Um. I, I continued to develop my, uh, my Essanon personality uh, as I grew up. I, I made all sorts of other boys my gods. I had a string of obsessions with various men that I was able to carry on these obsessions with no participation from them whatsoever. Um, and in fact, any participation that they did have, I, I could, you know, send in, in all sorts of different directions. I, 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 could, I could carry a torch for, for anyone at a distance of a million miles. Um, and then one day in 1993, I uh, started in, uh, a new job. I work in a situation uh, in a profession where we're, we're moving ar- around a lot. And uh, a guy walked by me, and uh, my brain said, "I'm going to marry him." And I thought, uh, "Okay, I should look at this person, see who this person is that I'm going to marry." And uh, I, I, I had an instant obsession with this man. I did not know him. I did not even really notice what he looked like um, or care what he looked like. I had, I had grabbed on in, in whatever. I had felt that sex addiction pull, and um, I, I, had, um, I had found a, a match. It uh, did not bother me that this man was engaged to be married. Um, I didn't uh, pursue him, but um, but I felt certainly that his his um, marriage was was going to be a sham because obviously we were meant to be together, and 
I, um, you know, looking back on this, obviously it's crazy, but at the time, um, it just seemed like the truth to me. And I, I spent a lot of time writing in my journal because he was not available to me and, and because I was not willing to pursue him and he was just, uh, just well enough that he didn't pursue people who didn't pursue him. Last. If we ever get together, I'm gonna notice this one is, this was a red flag. And this event, this was a red flag. And, and this one. If, if we ever, if everything, if anything ever goes wrong between us, I'm gonna know this was a red flag here. And I, I noted them all down. And I didn't walk away. And that is my illness right there. I didn't say, wow, that's a lot of red flags. And there are a lot of other people out here that are available, actually available. Um, about a year later, uh, I tried to be friends with this guy. It, didn't, it was just awkward. Um, so we we broke off contact. But about a year later, he called me out of the blue um, and wanted to know what I was up to. <sighs> Red flag. Red flag. I didn't say, why are you calling me now? I said, oh, hi. How are you? Thank God I didn't start dating somebody else in this time. Because I'd been thinking about him this whole time. A year. I had carried a torch for this person I was not seeing and never had seen. Um, turned out his his marriage had just broken up two months, two and a half months after they got together. I didn't ask what he had done. I didn't ask. I asked why it had broken up. He said she cheated on him. I bought that. It was true, but he was also cheating on her. Um, I didn't ask, what did you do? In fact, he said... Well, I had my partner too, and I said, oh, please, she cheated on you. He could do no wrong, as far as I was concerned. Got together with this guy. Um, we went out for two and a half years. It was um, as soon as the divorce came through, which is after two years, everything went horribly, horribly wrong. I was surprised, because I thought, I kept waiting, I kept waiting. I thought, when, when the divorce comes through, everything will be great. Then we can be together, everything will be great. But of course, as soon as we could be together, everything went horribly for him. Because then he had to deal with that. Um, we had an incredibly disastrous and awful six months. Um, and uh, that did an, an enormous amount of damage to me because up until that time, um, although my codependence was in full bloom, it wasn't. I wasn't feeling the consequences of it. But at that point, um, for those six months, uh, I was feeling nothing but pain and was saying, what about me? What about me? And knowing I couldn't ask that because he was in such a state of crisis that it was too late for me to try to get my needs met by him in any way. If I had needed to do that, I needed to start a lot earlier when our relationship was, was going a lot better. Um, at the end of that six months, when I just when I thought things were going well again, he left me. It was a complete shock to me. I didn't know what had happened. And to make matters worse, uh, he continued to call me twice a week, and we would see each other once a week as well. Um, and he would spend all of his time telling me how much he loved me. Didn't make any sense to me. Again, red flags. And I didn't, I didn't know where to look at that point. Um, why is this person leaving me but telling me that they love me? Or, and I didn't think that's sick. I thought, um, well, he'll come back. And, and he did, of course. Um, 
So this went on um, for ages. I mean, we, we really tried everything. I'm sure a lot of you have been through many of these things. We tried uh, spending some time apart, but but writing to each other. We tried uh, trying to build the friendship. We tried um, couples counseling. We tried everything. And um, the the real I couldn't do anything until I knew what was really wrong. So uh, the point at which he was able to disclose to me really what his situation was, was absolutely crucial. All I knew was that something was horribly wrong. But he was able to lie about whatever he was doing. I had suspicions about certain women and various things, but, uh, but I'd ask him and he'd just deny it. And he was very, very good at covering up. And so I really, I couldn't know. And all I, all I believed was that I was, I was crazy. I was suspicious. Um, I, I, I thank God and my sex addict that he did not ever blame me for any of these things. He always said, it's my problem. It's not your problem. But I still didn't, I didn't believe him. That was the one thing I didn't believe. Because I thought it was my problem. And, um, so I just, I, I guess I just wanted to, to, to say to the SA members here that disclosure was the only thing that got me through this. I needed to know everything. Uh, because only then could I start to make my own decisions about, start to see where, where I really did fit in this and what I could do about it for myself, uh, for the relationship, uh, and so on. Um, once I knew what I was dealing with, I could, um, I could figure out what I was dealing with. Um, so my response to that, of course, because I'm, I'm a, a good student, was I went to the library and I got every single um, bit of information that could be gotten. Uh, out of the um, university library. So that's a lot. I had a stack that probably about two feet high. Not including books. That's just that's just uh, articles, scholarly articles. And I said, here, honey, read these. And I'll read them too. And then we'll be fixed. We'll read this number a week. And um, everything will be great. And he, he did read a couple of them. And then he said, um, uh, okay, well, I'll try to get around to them. And never looked at them again. And I was very upset. Um, Although later he gave me a, uh, I have bad allergies, and he gave me a, uh, a book on allergies and how to, how to deal with allergies. And I said, I'm not going to read that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we continued together not, um, being <laughs> uh, not, not dating, but certainly being emotionally involved with each other. I guess, I, I guess I would say we had an emotional affair for another, uh, another year. Um, and it was only um, after a year of working very hard and then um, find, having another betrayal um, happen to me uh, through a third party. Um, our, our couples counselor, um, I went out of town and our couples counselor continued to see my partner behind my back. I mean, we'd made an agreement about when she would see him and she um, changed that without telling me. And he didn't tell me and I found out. Um, so once again, I felt I had been cheated on. And... Um, and my uh, my sex addict um, had taken a terrible spiral um, for the worse, and uh, and actually was verbally abusive to me for the first time ever. And that was the um, that was the time at which I was able to to break things off finally. Um, well, sort of finally, uh, because <laughs> as many of you know, this continues um, as long as as long as you let it uh, continue. Um, I had I spent a year not talking to my sex addict. 
then he came back and uh, decided he wanted to marry me. Um, we, <laughs> uh, we tried to be friends. We tried to rebuild trust as friends. Um, and what I finally came to, and I, I mean, certainly this is not for everyone. Uh, many of you will be able to, um, to stop the spiral and stay together. But for me, it finally was uh, impossible for me to do. Uh, I did not feel I wanted to um, date him anymore, and I, I didn't feel like I ever knew, um, not in terms of him, of him and in what he said to me, but in, in my own self, I never felt on balance when he was around or when I was thinking about him or when we were um, spending time together. Uh, I had created so much damage in myself when we were together that I was unable to um, to continue with that. What I want to say um, to those of you who are single or who um, are terrified about uh, about leaving your partner if, if you're considering doing it um, it's really difficult it's really difficult it's horrible but it's also really great um, I did not date uh, until recently and uh, that was my choice and that was really important to me um, we originally broke up in 96 it's 2001 um, and I needed that time I didn't plan to, to wait five years. And in fact, when I did start dating recently, I didn't want to date. I thought, oh, it's too soon. Um, <laughs> and I tried to avoid it. I really tried to avoid it. But the guy's all right. So, um, And he's another. He's a, a, he's in another program, and he's sober. And so we're able to, he's able to understand where I'm coming from and to, and to hear me speak, program speak. So, But enough about that. Um, we're, we're here to talk about this. And... Um, <sighs> I think that although I've always been a person who's who's liked to have time on my own, I um, I don't use my time on my own very wisely. I tend to use it to obsess about things and about people, rather than to do my own work. And it was um, the the fact that we broke up in '96, and that I only was able to actually say, you know, I'm not comfortable with our friendship, and I need to just be on my own. Um, was that was only a year ago? That was in 2000 that I was able to do that. Um, it's difficult for me to accept, um, and I still um, spend a lot a lot of time thinking about what uh, what what kept me involved long after I knew I was um, able to be there. Um, and I wrote down actually a couple of things. I wonder if I can find that. I wrote down a list of what, what kept me there. And I'll just read a few of them. Um, need for control and entitlement. I, I helped him. I accepted his damage, so he should accept mine. Um, the ego boosts. Uh, whenever he had been acting out, he would come back and tell me what a great person I was. Um, and uh, my, my own fear of intimacy, my fear of new relationship, of getting to know a new person. Um, staying with somebody who's who's uh, not, as it turns out, compatible for me, but th- whose whose problems I know already seems easier than getting to know a new person. Um, I hate change of any kind. All change is bad, as far as I'm concerned. <sighs> um, a sense of honor. I had made a promise to myself and to my higher power that I would stay with him forever. 
Uh, we were not legally married, but as far as I was concerned, we were married. And I made that promise, and it's been very hard for me to go back on. Um, the expectations of other people. People would say to me, you're the happiest I've ever seen you when I was with him, when I was first with him. Uh, people told me that our relationship was meant to be. Uh, I was told, you're never more yourself than when you're with him. And I believed these things, even when I was miserable. Um, just the other day, my, my home group said, wow, you've really got such a bond with him. As if that meant that I should be with him. And I said, yeah, I've got a bond with him. We've got the same illness. We've got the two sides of the same illness. That doesn't mean that I should have to stay with him. Um, confusion. How did this happen? Why isn't this working? I want to stick around and, and make it work. Um, the romance of it. The romance of having this person who's a soulmate who, who has this same, this other side of the same. Okay. Um, the belief that love triumphs over everything. Um, and then just plain old viciousness. I thought, well, he's done all this damage to me. He should fix it. And, and then another version of that, which is, um, well, now that he's working, because he is in a program now, and now that he's working, once he's ready to have a right, uh, you know, a good and healthy relationship, better be with me. How dare he have it with someone else? Um, and just generally, I don't, I don't like to be wrong. So, um, obviously, a lot of um, work that I have, I have to do. Um, the the thing the moment that made me um, be able to walk away was um, a, a fight that we had a year ago in which I found out again through a third party that he was dating somebody else, which he was absolutely free to do. We'd been broken up with uh, we'd been broken up longer than we'd been together, um, you know. But I was shocked and appalled and offended that he would date someone else when a I wasn't dating someone else and he was mine. I owned him, and um, there was a really big. Um, moment, I think, for both of us when I just looked at him and I said, you know what, I don't know why. I feel that you have a right to own me and, and that is wrong. And we need to give that up. And I could feel myself getting high off of this argument. Um, we used to, or our discussion, whatever it was, um, and this was how it used to always be before we broke up in those last six months and every fight we had before that, um, I would get high in the argument. I would lose my sense of time. I would be aware that I couldn't feel my body. I would not know right from wrong. I wouldn't know which one of us was. I would not be able to differentiate between the two of us and who was saying what and who was feeling what. And I, I looked at myself in that moment and I said, I am high. This is my disease. This is my addiction and I need to walk away. Even though I, this man is a wonderful man. He's lovely in so many different ways. And I wanted to make it work, but this is, but I need to make my life sane. And that's more important. So, I'm actually gonna end a little bit early. Um, the topic that I was given was heart's demise or a blessing in disguise. And I want to say yes. <laughs> um, this really going through this relationship, having this disclosure, this information and, and finding my way to Essanon, 
which my sex addict found out about the programs and, and told me about Essanon. Um, broke my heart. Um, made me have to trash every belief I had ever had about love, relationships, partnerships, and the world. Um, someone to, earlier in the meeting was, was talking about the World Trade Center's coming crashing down and that that is a physical version of what we feel. Um, but I needed that kick in the ass because I was not doing it. I was spending my entire life focused on other people. And though I've cried through most of this presentation, I am thrilled, I am thankful that that happened to me, that I am now moving forward from it, that I have been moving forward from it. I have almost five years in Essanon, and I love it. I didn't think I wanted to go to Essanon. I thought I would hate it there. I was very resentful. And I immediately realized that these were fabulous, wonderful people just like myself (laughs) who... I could enjoy spending time with and learn a lot from. And uh, and likewise, those of you in SA, I honor you. Thank you very much for uh, being here. Uh, we're all working to make a better world for ourselves and the people around us. Thanks. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.